If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 123. Let me start this sermon with a question. Where do you look when all hope is lost? Where do you look when all hope is lost? This morning I started rereading the trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. It's an incredible series. And I was reminded in book two, The Two Towers, there's this scene, it's called the Battle of Helm's Deep. The, the good guys, at least, I won't get into details, there's hobbits and elves and all that stuff, but the good guys retreat to a fortress only to be surrounded by their enemies. Then, after being surrounded, there's a breach in the wall, the impenetrable fortress that they thought they were in has now been taken over. It seems that all hope is lost. Then, at the last moment possible, salvation comes from the hills. Gandalf, who's a wizard, shows up with an army at the last second on top of the hill as the sun shines and they are saved. It's an amazing moment as you read the book or if you've seen the movies. This is called, Tolkien coined this, by the way, a catastrophe. You catastrophe. It's a sudden, happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. I think it would be appropriate if you were brought to tears in that moment in the movie or maybe while you're reading the book. It's beautiful. Tolkien actually loved using this device. He used it throughout all his stories. Just when you think that the good guys can't win, that all hope is lost, what happens? There's a turn. Now, of course, we know as Christians that he took this or borrowed it from Christianity itself. Christianity is the story of the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. Now, usually saviors don't die. Three days later, three days of waiting, three days of darkness, three days of hopelessness, he rose from the grave. The impossible, then a turn and sudden joy, resurrection. Psalm 123 is a song of waiting for that sudden turn. It's a song of hope for a happy ending. Listen to the main point of Psalm 123. It's simple. Look and lament to God for mercy. Look and lament to God for mercy. If you're following along, Psalm 123 is on page 7 of your bulletin. If you have your Bible, you can follow along there also. If you notice again, the superscript says, A Song of Ascent. We're back continuing that journey, singing these pilgrim songs on the way up the mountain to Jerusalem with the people of Israel. Listen along as I read Psalm 123. A song of ascents. To you I lift up my eyes. You who are enthroned in the heavens, 
Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. Let's pray. O Lord, we pray in your steadfast love would you give us life that we may keep the testimonies of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at Psalm 123 with me for a second. In the first two verses, the words eyes or the idea of looking mentioned eight times, eight times in two verses. And the psalmist tells us where he looks. Look at verse one. He looks to the one enthroned in the heavens, to the Lord our God, verse two. The psalmist even tells us how he looks. Look at verse two. He looks as a servant looks to a master, as a maidservant looks to her mistress. This is a look with expectation. Then he tells us why he looks. Look at that last phrase of verse two. He's looking for mercy. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us. Repeated three times in a row. He's pleading, Lord, have mercy. Now, we have to ask, why does the psalmist need mercy? But again, that answer is given in verses three and four. We have had more than enough of contempt, more than enough of scorn. The psalmist is tired of being mistreated. Mistreated by the proud, mistreated by the arrogant. He's tired of the looks he gets, tired of the slander. He said he's had enough. He's had more than enough. And so what does he do? He looks up to God, laments his situation, and he cries out for mercy. Now, if we remember, this was sung by the people of Israel on the journey up to Jerusalem. Ultimately, though, Jesus tells us this psalm is fulfilled in him. He is God's mercy upon us. Now, through faith in Christ, it's our psalm. And God means to use this psalm to help us journey to heaven. And I think there's two ways that we can apply this psalm to us today. Two ways. First, we look to the God of heaven. <clears throat> look to the God of heaven. We need to look personally. Look at verse one. Notice how the psalmist begins. To you, I lift up my eyes. He personally looks himself. He personally looks to the God of heaven. I can't look to God for you. You can't look for me. We each have an individual responsibility to look to God. We each must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I tell my children this all the time. So if you're a kid in the room, let me speak specifically to you. You need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I tell my kids every day, God loves you. God loves you. 
more than anyone else, and so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. So look to him. Look to Jesus. The psalmist also tells us we need to look up. We need to look up. Look at verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now the nation surrounding Israel, they also looked up. They looked up to idols. Their idols were the work of silver and gold made by human hands. They would say to Israel, where is your God? But the psalmist lifted up his eyes away from his circumstances, away from himself, up to the heavens, to the very throne of God. The prophet Isaiah said, Heaven is the Lord's throne, the earth is his footstool. So he looks up. And Christians were to do the same thing, were to look up. So let me ask you, where are your eyes? Are they fixed on your circumstances, the problems that you face, the hardships at work? Often when we're in a trial, it's all we can think about. It's hard to focus Hard to think of anything else. Even we lose sleep over it. Maybe you're not one of those who fixes your eyes on your circumstances, but are they fixed on yourself? What you should have done, what you need to do, what you are doing, what you will do. When we're in a trial, often one of the first things we think is, what do I need to do to get myself out of this? But Jesus gives us a better way. He taught us in the Sermon on the Mount. He taught us to lift up our eyes and pray like this, our Father in heaven. If you had the help of the CEO of your company, or maybe the head of the police force, or the president of your country, imagine that. You had their help. You would go to them, wouldn't you? Now, Christian, did you know that you have the help of the king of the universe? With eyes of faith, let me encourage you, brother and sister, look up. And if you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you came and gathered with us this afternoon. Let me ask you a question. Where do you look to for help? Where do you go? Think, especially in times of desperation, those times in your life where money cannot solve the problem. Those times where disease cannot be cured by doctors. Think about that day of death that each one of us will face. Who will be your help on that day? Lift up your eyes, friend. Look to God. We need to look up. In verse 2, we also see that we need to look expectantly. Look at verse 2. Two pictures of expectation. A servant and the master, a maidservant and the mistress. Of course, the master has authority over the servant. The same goes with the mistress. She's in charge of the maidservant. Both the servant and the maidservant look with expectation for favor. Christians, as we just sang, as one of our members wrote this, this song we sang, the God of heaven hears our pleas. How do you expect he'll answer? 
the psalmist was looking to the heavenly throne, hoping and expecting in God, in Christ, as Christians. How much more should we hope in God with expectation? The author of Hebrews reminds us, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and help in time of need. Now, you can't approach a throne unless you have permission from the king. And you actually only approach a throne if you're expecting the king will give you a favorable favorable answer. Now, in Jesus, we have access to that heavenly throne room. And we know the outcome will be favorable if we're in Christ. So look, friend, expectantly. We also see in verse 2 that we need to look together. There's a shift. Do you see from I in verse 1? In verse 2, he says, our, our eyes look to the Lord, our God. The psalmist sings this song on the road to Jerusalem with God's people. So this song is individual. It's corporate, too. We need to look personally. We also need to look together. And this is, friends, the Christian life. Every Friday, we gather together to look to God as a church. We're silent before God together. We sing to God together. We pray to God together. We hear God's word together. And then throughout the week, when we leave this space, we continue looking to God together. We do it by eating a meal and thinking about how to apply the sermon. We do it by sitting over coffee and studying God's word together. We do it as we pray for one another and pray together for friends and family members. Even as we seek to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus, we do that together, trusting together that God is the one who will give new life. Now at Covenant Hope Church, I am so encouraged by how we as a church do this. So many of you guys are studying the Bible together. So many of you center your life around the local church. Some of you even choose to live near church members so that you can spur each other on in the faith more regularly. Let me urge you, as Paul says, continue to do this more and more. And in all of this, as we look to God together, what's happening? We're becoming more like God together. This is how people change, Paul says. He says it's by beholding the glory of the Lord. By looking to Jesus, what's happening? We're actually becoming more like Jesus. And knowing the Lord has always been communal. This is something we especially need to hear in an individualistic city like Dubai that's filled with loneliness. We see God so little on our own. How helped are we when we help one another, surround one another, and point to God and look together? Lastly, we see in verse 2 that we need to look patiently. Look at that last line of verse 2. We look to God till he has mercy upon us. That little word, till, it means that we're waiting on God's timetable, 
not our own. It means we're waiting when all we can see is darkness. We're waiting when all we can hear is silence. It means that we need to wait longer than we'd like to. It means that we must not let our gaze be distracted because mercy is coming and it will come in God's timing. Now, when we wait for the sunrise, we sit in darkness for a moment, but we know that soon the sun will break the horizon and the day will come. So we look to God and we wait, knowing in his time, in his perfect timing, he will come through. Look to the God of heaven. That's one way we apply this song. We look, it's so simple. In times of trouble, in times of trial, look to God. Let's consider verses three and four. Here we learn to lament to the God of mercy. Lament to the God of mercy. Maybe that's a new word for you, lament. Before I show you lament in this passage, here's a very simple definition. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. A prayer in pain that leads to trust. We see pain in verses three and four. Look at verses three and four. The psalmist says, we've had more than enough of content. We've had more than enough of scorn. There's pain. He feels it, anguish, he's tired. And yet, if we look back at verses one and two, we also see trust, trust in the Lord. He says, I lift up my eyes to you. Our eyes look to the Lord, our God. Pain and trust together, that's lament. Now, for many Christians and for many churches, lament is a dead language. Many of us have forgotten how to grieve. We've chosen not to mourn. And so doing, we've acted like everything is always okay. We've pretended that Christians don't experience pain. Christians don't experience brokenness. Christians don't experience disappointment. But when we think about Jesus, we remember that suffering and sadness were very much a part of Jesus's life. And so they must be a part of ours as well. It was actually just a year and a half ago. The pastors of the church, Brian, myself, Mark, we sat down and realized that we needed to recover a biblical pattern of lament in our churches. So a year and a half ago, we started praying prayers of lament in our gathering. And in God's providence, the first prayer of lament was just weeks before COVID-19 shut our church and many churches across the globe down. And friends, I don't need to tell you, you know this. Each of us have, has had much, too much to lament during this pandemic. We need to learn this language. One helpful book on this topic that I found is a book by a guy named Mark Vergop. It's called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. He offers four key elements to a biblical lament. First, there's an address to God. Second, there's a complaint. Third, a request is made. And fourth, an expression of trust is given. So lament is more than just expressing sorrow. 
It's more than just complaining about suffering. Lament is actually how we turn to God when we are in the day of sorrow. It's how we look to God in that day of distress. So let's look at Psalm 123 now and let's learn to lament together. The first thing we see is we need to lament in prayer. There's actually a shift from verse two to three. If you look, the waiting turns to prayer. He says, we're going to look until we have mercy upon us. Then he turns to prayer. He makes his request. It's bold. It's simple. It's a prayer for one thing and for one thing only. Have mercy upon us. Mercy is God's tender-hearted compassion toward his people. That's what the psalmist wants. It's not something he's owed. But he knows that it's something that God freely gives. Multiple times a day, my daughter will come up to me and she'll ask me for one thing, the one thing she wants, a snack. Multiple times a day, snack, snack, snack. And she knows. She asks me because she knows I'm rich in snacks. I have lots of snacks. And if it's not right before dinner, she knows that I will probably give her a snack. With her mother's permission, of course. I want to ask you, how often do you go to God and ask for mercy? Paul says God is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4. The only thing the Bible says God is rich in, mercy. One pastor in London, John Stott, he was a pastor in London for decades, and he started every morning praying this prayer. Holy, blessed, and glorious Trinity, three persons in one God, have mercy upon me. Amen. Christian, we can make that our daily prayer. Have mercy upon me. It can be our daily prayer. It can be the prayer that we pray on the darkest day of our life. Have mercy upon me. The psalmist is teaching us we need to lament in prayer. He's also teaching us we need to lament our suffering. Lament is the language of the suffering. And we see so much suffering of the psalmist in verse 3. There's contempt. There's scorn by the proud. He's disgraced. He's disregarded, hated, hurt, humiliated. He's had enough. We're learning here from the psalmist that it's actually okay to complain to God. I've had enough, Lord. I've had enough. It's an honest prayer. It's a heartbroken prayer. But it's also a hopeful prayer, too. Now, as we think about suffering and lamenting suffering, we shouldn't think first of our problems or our persecutors. We must remember that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was despised, Isaiah said, rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised. There was never a man that walked the entire earth who faced more scorn, more contempt than Jesus. He was mocked, then spit on, beaten, then crucified. And this psalmist here is praying for mercy 
pleading for mercy from God? The answer to this prayer, of course, is Jesus Christ. He suffered for our sin. He died for our forgiveness. He rose for our new life. And he saved us, Paul says, not because of the good things we did, but according to his own mercy. Jesus is the reason you can look to God and find mercy when you cry to him in your time of need. I love this line by Dane Orland. He asked the question, do you know what Jesus does with those who squander his mercy? What does he do? He pours out more mercy. Christian, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He endured the cross, despising the shame. He seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, the author of Hebrews says, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Christian, he endured hostility on your behalf for your salvation, but also for your empowerment so that you would not grow hopeless when you experience such hostility. That's good news, friends. That's the good news of the gospel. And if you're not a Christian, oh, I wish that you would believe this. I wish I could make you look to God to see him for as he truly is. But what I can do is to pray for you, even now, that the Lord would have mercy upon you in the name of Jesus Christ. Maybe you think I'm too sinful. He's merciful, friend. Maybe you think I'm too wicked. Friend, he's merciful. As we'll sing in just a moment, his, your sins, they may be many. His mercy is more. Look to Jesus. And Christians, as we look at this psalm, we must be reminded that we're actually guaranteed scorn and contempt for following Jesus Christ. So as we carry our cross and follow Jesus to heaven, we need to learn to lament the suffering that we will face, that we're promised to face along the way. The last thing the psalmist teaches us in verses three and four is that we lament together, together. It's impossible not to see the corporate nature of this psalm. Look at all those us's and ours. They fill almost every single verse. So church, together, this is our prayer. If one of us suffers, we all struggle. If one of us is burdened, we all bear it. If one of us is persecuted, we're all pained. This is the life of a Christian in the local church. But sadly, as we know, we don't always lament together. What happens when believers don't lament together? The book of Job is in many ways an answer to this question. If you know the story of Job, he lost his 10 children, all his kids in one day. He lost his livestock, his servants, all gone. They died. He was a man of profound suffering. And when his friends finally came to visit him, 
They sat in silence for seven days. Now, sometimes I know that when someone is going through immense grief, we just don't know what to say. So we think maybe it's better if I don't say anything. But seven days. Job lamented chapter three. If you look at Job chapter three, it's one giant lament. What do his friends do? They rebuke him. They say, why are you talking like that? They scrutinize his mourning. Then they confess his perceived sins. They think it'd be really helpful for Job if we helped him understand why he's suffering in this way. They were playing God. So they tried to humble him, pressure him, shame him. But they should have just admitted in the honesty of their own hearts, Lord, we don't know what you're doing. And then they should have prayed with Job and lamented, Oh Lord, have mercy on our brother Job. We need to lament together because left to our own, our suffering causes us to wonder if God is really merciful. But as we lament together, we remind one another to complain with eyes of faith. We remind one another of hope. We remind one another, friend, his mercy never ends. Trust him. Left to our own, we grasp for control over our circumstances. But as we lament together, we collectively admit we're not the ones in control, but we can trust the one who is. So church, let's choose to lament together. Share your suffering with a brother and sister. Let them go to God with you and for you and lament your situation. As we close this afternoon, there's just one last thing to consider with lament. It's the fact that we lament temporarily, temporarily. We're journeying to heaven together. Lament is one of our songs for the road. Maybe you're going through that dark day right now. You need some friends to lament with you. Friend, after the service, grab some fellow Christians, share your pain and sorrow and pray together. But you must know that a day is coming when we will lament no more. For Christians, this is our guarantee that our catastrophe, the worst day of our lives, will take a sudden turn eventually. It's that day when there will be no more tears, when death will be no more, when pain will disappear. It's the day that Jesus comes back and makes all things new. Our groaning replaced with praise. Our grief turned to delight all as we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Friend, don't you long for that day? Don't you look forward to that day? Surely he is coming soon, but until that day, we look and lament to God for mercy. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. Let's pray. O Lord, we do pray. Would you please have mercy upon us? We plead with you, Lord.
Help our eyes to see Jesus in the midst of our trials. Lord, fill our hearts with hope of the good news of the gospel that you're making all things new. And help our lips be quick to lament our pain and trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.